0: So, I'm sitting here uh, in Chelsea with Michael York, author of several books, including the uh, The Pagan Theology, mm-hmm. and most more recently, Pagan Ethics, right. and uh, formerly a professor of all sorts of things.
1: <laughs> well, cultural astronomy and astrology is what yes. officially I'm a professor of
0: okay. Yeah. I was looking at your cV CV the other day, and it was, mm-hmm. I can't possibly summarize this as like a seven or eight page. (laughs) Uh, I don't
1: don't dare look at it any longer. (laughs) But um, Yeah, I've I've had a very... I actually became... I had written a book on the origins of European-speaking peoples, Mm. and I was looking at the spirituality. And it became ultimately my main call a celebrity, my magnum mm. opus, but I couldn't get it published because the only person who would, the only outfit that would consider it would be an academic press, mm-hmm. and i concluded that the only way that an academic press would consider me is if I had a PhD. Mm-hmm. So late in life, I, I wanted to get a, uh, wanted to do a PhD in Indo-European studies since I have left America, I was not keen to go back to America. And the most feasible site would have been UCLA where they have an Indo-European studies Mm -hmm. department. Um, I I approached Colin Renfrew in Britain and he was encouraging, but he said he couldn't take me on. So I ended up looking around in Britain Uh, it seemed like the most feasible place for me to do the studies. And I went to King's College, London. It was only Mm -hmm. five stops away on the underground line, and I wouldn't have to change lines even. And Keith Ward was then uh, department chair of uh, religious studies department of theology. And he said, that's very interesting, but there's no one here that could supervise Mm -hmm. you and I didn't care at this point I just wanted to get the PhD I wanted to do religious studies and partly that was because I was always interested in I was interested in the past but I was actually wanted to understand how would paganism as a rediscovered spirituality of today is applicable to contemporary issues Mm -hmm. so Keith put me in contact with Peter Clark, and he said, "Well, I'm only interested in new religious movements." When I met Peter, and I had fortuitously read in the Herald Tribune the day before about this new religious movement involving Shirley MacLaine and Jay Z Knight, calling itself New Age. So I just threw that out at Peter, and he immediately snapped his fingers and said, "Yes." So and. At this point, I mean, I just want to go back to school. I didn't care what I was actually doing. Uh, it was really one of the most thrilling, exciting periods. Mm-hmm. I, I loved doing it. And I think the older you are when, when you go back, it becomes even more meaningful and special. So uh, in time, I was able to broaden my focus on not just New Age but Neo-Paganism as well. Right,
2: right.
1: And years later, I was invited back to Peter asked me to give a talk, and I was amazed. All the people that I had studied and interviewed mm-hmm. for my dissertation were now either taking, doing uh, postgraduate studies at King's College, or even teaching there. And Vivian Crowley said, uh, mm-hmm. "She said you're the one that opened this all up." Wow. So that was a nice feeling.
0: Yeah. Now. <laughs> Was that? Did that dissertation turn into the the emerging network, yes, which is the first
1: yes, book of yours yes, yes, that yes. I became acquainted? Yes, with, yeah. that was then. That was the mm-hmm. dissertation,
2: uh-huh.
1: and then I wa- then of course I was hooked on academia, and I wanted to stay with it. And it was just at that time mm-hmm. where, across the board, every they were reducing teaching staffs. Mm-hmm and uh, there were no openings Uh, we actually had gone back to California and couldn't get anywhere there either and I came we came back just to check on the property and we were literally going out this door when the phone rang we were going down to France to check we have a small farm there that we were checking on and it was Marion Bowman saying well there's this research fellowship in in Bath would you be interested and I said well, of course I'd be interested so to make a long story short I got it mm. and then everything followed from there and I was it was a dream job not the salary but everything else was, could not have been more perfect I was expected to travel I was encouraged to travel oh, wow. um, I could do what what almost virtually anything I wanted and, uh, of course, I wanted to teach. That wasn't necessarily part of the, the remit, but they, I came up with the idea of doing a course on sacred geography.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I was sent to the geography department to see if that would meet with their de- approval because it was geography. And they were quite surprised. They weren't expecting this at all, but they said yes. So uh, I got into teaching. Then I ended up, becoming, once we developed this astrology studies center. And it was mostly astrologers that were um, our students. And they all wanted to understand astrology as astrology. And I said, we're not here to prove astrology right or wrong. Um, Because of Peter Clark, I got trained in sociology of religion and I said we'll approach it as a sociological phenomenon, why are people why do they accept it why are they influenced by it, how does it modify their behavior, and the classic example is um, India which postponed its original day of independence because the stars weren't right and so it was things like that the astrologers, they did it, they weren't particularly happy yeah about having to look at their own uh, study as a phenomenological, uh, through with phenomenological means. But uh, it was really a very, very exciting time. Mm-hmm. And then I, it was time for me to retire, so I <laughs> retired.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, I wanted to ask you a few questions mm-hmm. about your book on pagan ethics, mm-hmm. because of course. Uh, it's a timely subject. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you could ever say that there isn't a timely, yeah. uh, 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 where ethics is in the spotlight, but it really is right now in more in, in pretty much every field, and I think I'd like to start with. What I, consider the sort of the backbone of any ethical system, if I'm talking, no matter who I'm talking to, if I say, hey, I believe in the golden rule, Mm -hmm. do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's pretty much accepted that we're both humans, we're not going to, you know, bilk each other, we're not, but where, what to you is the root of of human ethics?
1: Oh, that's, (laughs) It is a good question. Um... I think the root of human ethics is is basically being human. I use the word pagan, human, and natural as equivalent synonyms Mm. essentially. And I think at heart to the fact, to the degree that we are human, we are natural, we are part of nature. And to me that being part of nature has to do with the responsibility, but it has to do with relationship. How we relate to the planet, how we relate with each other, how we relate to whatever we consider to be the miraculous or the spiritual, uh, whatever terms we want to use for those. And when you're talking about relationship, you're talking automatically about... An ethic is already implied in just that... Re, that setup that you're relating to something else, are you relating to it as a dictator? Are you relating to it as a slave? Are you relating to it as a potential equal? Um, and to the degree that you are relating on a level playing field, that's the domain of ethics. Mm. And I'm not sure if I really answered that question, mm, mm-hmm. but. Um,
0: Well, I mean I, get, I started at that with that question just because it seems to me uh, that you, are, you frame the com- your conversation around pagan ethics in terms of th- this, this predates what we would consider organized religions. I
1: think, I think ethics begins with paganism. I mean, paganism is the oldest spiritual practices that we know of before you had the rise of the dharmic religions of hinduism buddhism um, really before you had even judaism because judaism we can see in its own old testament history is a break from its pagan predecessors and then of course christianity and islam so um, paganism is the root of religion And especially among the Greeks, but also with Confucius, and and probably even in indigenous uh, societies, um, ethical questions were always part of what it meant to be human. And I always come down to Aristotle as one of my favorites, in that he said that ethical, what we want ethically is the good life, and what we want is happiness and then how do we define happiness what makes one person happy and is it at the expense of another person so all these the ramifications are what it is to be human Um, and since I think human and pagan are the same I think essentially we're all at heart pagan whether we have overlaid it with some other uh, spiritual or religious development or not so
0: well that's it (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. I I mean, yeah. I mean, I have I've got Christian friends who who quote um uh the 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 early sages, and I'll say, well, you know, that was a that was a pagan philosopher. You're just quoting there. Yeah. Uh, and and that's like no, it's Greek. Therefore, it's Western civilization. The the pagan God. part of it is somewhat. Erased, or maybe it was just never really understood in terms of their education of uh, ancient philosophy.
1: That that's probably very true, and but of course we our New Testament uh, is written in Greek, right? Yeah. So um, there's such a fusion of the Christian movement that grew out of Judaism with Platonism, Neoplatonism. platonism mm-hmm. yeah. um, and so you have within the Greek uh, religious tradition or Hellenic, you really could start it with uh, Pythagoras and maybe the Orphic tradition, right. but there is this whole thrust which is more commensurate with the kind of transcendentalism that comes out of the Abrahamic religions. Mm. Um, in which the physical is rejected, it, the body becomes a tomb, um, the whole endeavor is to escape, to transcend, uh, usually considered returning to, to the original one source. Mm. Um, and that whole Platonic tradition counters what I think was the ri- more original um, local physical um, mythic, mythological traditions of, of the Greeks uh, and so in time of that became the ascendant and because I think life is precarious it involves pain, it involves loss there is a natural human propensity to want to have something that's safer. Mm-hmm. And so this transcendent dream is something that people then aspire to. What happens then, because the physical is, is is rejected negative, it's considered something that comes after the spiritual. Whereas I think a pagan, if you look at indigenous paganisms and the Greeks and so forth, I mean they, Things start with the earth, start with Gaia. Mm-hmm. Um, that physicality is recognized as a sacred in itself. Uh, this is not to deny that the transcendental could also be sacred, but it's not the origin. That mm-hmm. the earth is the matrix, and I think matter has this intrinsic propensity or even desire to become conscious, and so it. Consciousness is an ex post fact, ex post factor mm-hmm. uh, development. Uh, it wasn't a super conscious mind that said, All right, let, let there be earth and so right. forth. But it's all part of this constant evolving of the physical to become conscious. It's really basically the universe wanting mm-hmm. to see itself, and we're vehicles, right? In that process.
0: Well, that's interesting. That it makes me, uh, it reminds me of. Part uh, in your book where you talk about reevaluating idolatry. Mm-hmm. So would you consider that as, as part of that same? You know, even the statue of whether it's Vishnu or yeah. you know.
1: A- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Is that? Is that? Uh,
1: yeah, I think the book. Mm-hmm. I basically framed the book in a re-evaluation of idolatry. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Vivekananda who came out with the statement that, I think it was Vivekananda, that, you know, what's so bad with idolatry? Um, Hinduism has the whole Bhakti tradition, which is about as close to Western forms of idolatry. Mm -hmm. Um, The idol is only a vehicle, it's a tool. Um, It's something that we can use. It's not a necessity but it's like a mirror it helps us reflect it helps us uh, contact or resonate or explore some intrinsic understanding we might have of the divine Um, i think if everything emanates from the earth the earth is the matrix and there's nothing beyond nature Let's see now if I can, if I've kept that thought. There is, everything is sacred, which includes the idol, which includes uh, what we humans make as a work of art, and that's essentially what I think the idol is. Mm-hmm. But even in nature religion, when we revere the earth, we're revering, that is a form of idolatry. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't understand the rejection of the idol other than that by a very jealous and controlling monopolizing entity which is what i think the abrahamic god essentially is and let's face it the you combine islam and christianity and that's half of the planet in itself so it's a strong persuasive um, religious way of evaluating the world mm-hmm. uh, I think it I mean we can see it with the environmental consequences that's one of the negatives and we're destroying the very, our very mother and the very source that gives us life but um, I lost where I was going on that well,
0: the, the whole idea of idolatry I I I don't, I don't think, I would be hard pressed to, to present it in a black and white. There mm. I'm just going through the my Rolodex of religious experiences or watching mm. other people. So I have a friend who has a little statue of Ganesh in her car and every time she gets in the car she just touches that touches and then that. turns on the car. How is that really different than my friend who is a Catholic and... When she's in trouble, she just you know you know fingers the rosary. I mean, it's it's these automatic movements which crystallize a a a a thought pattern or a meditative state or or just an unspoken prayer. I don't see that. Just seems like such a human impulse.
1: It is. It's a very natural impulse. Meaning
0: to a thing or.
1: I think you put it very well, actually, and. The, I mean, I know idolatry really from going to India, and I I went for over a, a twenty year period. Um, this job covered that <laughs> when I was the research fellow. That was wonderful, but I wanted to go to India because I want to me. It was the only place I could think of that still had temples that were used, and I wanted to understand what was the dynamic in. A, a temple that would be like a pagan temple, the ones that we've lost in the West. And I learned, I mean, fortuitously, I met the right person and was introduced to Puja and the format of puja. And uh, I loved it. It was so uh, it was so different than the way I was raised from my own Methodist background. Um, and to Honor a figure, uh, to salute to it, to bow to it. You could even prostrate to it. Um, there was a certain dynamic that uh, was fascinating. And the doing puja—it was a ritual thing. I would I, every morning and every evening I would basically go through the same routine. And sometimes you felt awful because that's India, and you were half ill. Or suddenly the lights would go out and you would plunge into blackness and there was only just a, a little lamp going. Uh, all it was the dynamics of other people who were also worshipping at the same time. Uh, all of a sudden something would coalesce, and you would have that those wonderful moments of what the Hindu calls a darshan, in which the deity suddenly becomes alive in its vehicle, and speaks or communicates or confirms something that you needed confirming at that moment and uh that whole venerational process was to me incredibly exciting and dynamic Mm -hmm. and and it made me understand the rationale of idolatry um i didn't feel uh, ashamed that i was honoring a, a figure um since everything is divine that figure is also divine but it's kind of what uh, Robert Corrington in uh, one of his books he's exploring um, oh it's called Nature's Religion and he's fascinated with places like Delphi and Stonehenge and so forth and he speaks of it as these places have semiotic plenitude and in a way i think that's exactly the principle behind the idol is that it has a concentration of meaning and input especially as many many people are focused on a particular physical substance their energies are imputed into it and then it augments and can feed back and uh, that to me is what that mm-hmm. process involves.
0: Semiotic plenitude. It's a
1: wonderful expression. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> that's,
0: a, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. that's a lot. That's, that's Robert Corrington.
0: Okay. So, would you, I mean, that, how would you differentiate, or do you differentiate between paganism
1: mm-hmm.
0: and humanism?
1: I don't. Um, that's a good question too. Um, I know that <clears throat> humanism is traditionally understood as kind of a rationalism, um, and to me, humanism is broader than that. Humanism is a focus or a cherishing of the human. Um, I think a pagan humanism or or paganism as humanism um, does cherish the human, but not But the human, as it's situated within the natural, Mm -hmm. as part of nature, um, human means um, child of the earth, um, from humus. And so, uh, to be human, we're we're offsprings of the earth. And we're part of the earth's desire to be conscious, um, to have even more movement, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and Um, so when you I know contemporary paganism thinks of itself more as uh, nature worship and naturism and I think that's very true and that's how I approach it but I don't think that excludes the human but includes it centrally and when as soon as you have the human included in any aspect of centrality that's a form of humanism it's not the traditional understanding of humanism, but uh, and it's not secular humanism; it's pagan
0: humanism. Isn't so. that interesting? Yeah. I don't know if there is, if there, uh, it, with your definition of humanism, there is no secular humanism because yeah. it's all connected to the earth.
1: Uh, uh, it just kind yeah. of
0: closes that door.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, mean, I think we have to honor. The secular perspective. I mean, I basically see, as a sociologist, I talk in terms of the ideal type, Mm -hmm. and to understand the religions, religious options in the world, the global religions, Mm -hmm. they're either Abrahamic, or they're Dharmic, or they're secular, or pagan. And I see secularism as very much a religion in the sense that it's taking a stance on whatever it considers is valuable and is meaningful and that's what any religion is is doing Mm -hmm. and secularism has served paganism to the extent that it has made a wedge between the more established religions of Christianity, Islam, Buddhism Hinduism and it's allowed people to say well wait a moment, there might be a, a different way the shortcoming of secularism is that it it does not also centralize enchantment, mm. so it doesn't have that same kind of. I mean, if you talk to someone like Bron Taylor, uh, Bron will say, "Well, yes, he looks at nature and he sees nature as miraculous, which it is, but." Uh, Max Weber, the sociologist, one of our founding fathers, in fact, uh, he deplored the fact that the world was becoming disenchanted. And he said, we need that sense of the magical. And I think that's what paganism, whether it's a secular form or it's a more uh, magical form, uh, still incorporates that appreciation of wonder Mm -hmm. and and the magical. Mm and it's something that the human spirit seems to need and without it i think we're we're just a, a bit emptier and perhaps even more lost
0: um, um makes me think of the uh, astrophysicist neil degrasse tyson
1: yes yes
0: who's wonderful man he's the uh, director of the Hayden Planetarium I believe yeah written numerous books and and I follow him on Twitter because I find him so inspirational I mean he's an atheist but he has a tremendous heart and a you know sense of connectedness and crucially for me a a sense of awe that wonder that you know
1: exactly central thing of everything yes yeah. right mm-hmm. yeah
0: and I don't I, I guess to me secular would mean that you don't you don't f- I, do you not f- have a moment where you see yourself as a very small little speck in this immense universe now that to me just invokes awe
1: I I mean I, I th- there's a lot of contemporary pagans which would describe themselves as secular. Mm. Um, our dear Wendy Griffin, for, for one, doesn't... How does she phrase it? I don't think she doesn't believe in the goddess, doesn't believe in the supernatural. She uses them as metaphors, which I think a lot of us do. Um, there are a number of people that are, reject the whole concept of the supernatural, and I think that's partly because, first of all, the term... It, it, it's placing something again above the natural uh, I, I prefer the term preternatural or co-natural um, and I think the way to approach the, that you can't approach it empirically you can approach it metaphorically and that's what religion is it's a collection of symbols and metaphors that one can explore and, uh, and through that Penetrate to what Vivian Crowley would call the the spiritual truth within them. Um, so, I think the secularists are one of the pagans' strongest allies um, because they're not intimidated by the Abrahamic God basically uh, maneuvers through uh, imp- imputing uh, feelings of guilt and shame, uh, they're not intimidated by the karmic, dharmic idea that, you know, there's another reality, that this is all an illusion, it's a dream, and you have to dissolve it, you have to either cease having any desire for anything, and I think paganism is all about desire mm. at its heart. Um, so the secularists have in a sense I mean they are one of our closest allies and they um, I think at heart at least ethically I would go with secularism as the basic of ethics Hmm. and I think again the difference between the pagan per se and the secularist is that sense of wonder and the magical and, and using it Uh, again, Braun Taylor argues, and and I like a lot of what Braun says and his dark green religion Mm -hmm. and all that, but he feels that by focusing on these religious metaphors they become an impediment to the appreciation of nature. And of course anything can become an obstacle or an impediment if it's used incorrectly, Uh, but I don't think it's an either-or situation uh i think we can have both the magical and the natural and work with them both and it involves a certain kind of a dance between the two and with the two but um i wouldn't want to reject either one Mm
2: -hmm.
0: will you actually lay out uh in one of the chapters of your book seven values yes that uh, are essential to human flourishing (laughs) which I like
1: (laughs) all right I call them virtue values okay Um, because I mean they are to me they are the the prime virtues but they're values in themselves Mm -hmm. and I will always start with freedom. I think that's, I know that's essential for for any pagan, but I think that's essential for any human. And again, there I go again. Pagan and human are equivalent terms. Um, I think freedom is something that is. We want freedoms for something to do something, and we want freedoms from something. We want freedoms from pain, from uh, oppression, from Whatever negatives there might be that we can be free from. Um, so freedom, I think, is is the most essential. But I think another um, major human value and drive is that for comfort. Um, we can. When I, the first time I came to Europe, I mean, I was hitchhiking. I had, I lived, I think, on seventy dollars a month and eating off the land and and really learning what was absolutely essential and I had to eat I had to sleep of course I had to defecate and these were these absolute everyday necessities I could go several days without sleep if necessary but I had to keep warm um, Mm -hmm. and ultimately Mm -hmm. and and you had to wash but the other necessity for me was to dream and if you don't have dreams then then something is missing um but so you could i could i slept in train stations i slept under a bush in, in a wonderful park in paris I, uh, but you always wanted if you could to do it more comfortably and certainly a nice bed. People sometimes just invited me into their homes and and fed me and washed me and gave me a wonderful bed to sleep in. A um, hot water shower is better than uh, jumping into a cold water whatever. And so I think comfort is something that we all intrinsically seek. And so comfort is often something that's rejected, it's put down, it's uh, we do have a stoic bent to our nature, and so we very often people reject it. But I think we have to accept and honor comfort itself as a human aspiration.
0: Stoic and maybe Calvinist. Yeah,
1: oh, definitely Calvinist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, but the there is a check on comfort, and that is health. Mm. And you can't just become intimately comfortable, you still have to maintain our vehicles, our bodies, our, um, our living conditions, our environment, our planet for that matter, and health means whole, it means it's, it's our whole, it's, it's everything when you really come right down to it, it's the whole, it's the environment, it's the holisticness of, of life and of being. And so I think that's another primary uh, value or virtue. Mm-hmm. And then broadly, I call it worship mm-hmm. is the fourth. Um, to differentiate it a little bit more, I, w- I would say honor. I think we have to have honor and worship in our lives. Uh, I understand that both formally as either su- uh, ritual worship or prayer or uh, doing something consciously um, in respect or honor of the divine in whatever form and I then think that worship has three informal aspects uh, which are just as important one of them being pleasure and certainly for the pagan I think pleasure is of vital centrality But if you really look at human beings, for the most part, I think pleasure is something that is there too. It's been squelched by, again, our Calvinistic tradition, um, the Orphics, the Pythagoreans and the Platonic tradition, um, and even Buddhism. Um, But I think if we're going to be fully human, and certainly fully pagan, uh, pleasure is a centrality. It doesn't just mean uh, sensual pleasure, although that's not to be rejected, that's certainly a part of it, and a welcome part of it. But there's a pleasure in learning, there's a pleasure in all kinds of things. I'll let that go. Um, And he's deaf, he can't (laughs) hear
0: it. Um, So, um, So pleasure as different than comfort
1: yes in other yes. words
0: that desire again
1: comfort is a, a more basic thing pleasure uh-huh. is something that's more uh, it's, it's somehow it's extra it's more uh-huh. indulgent but along with pleasure or at least pleasure in being and these are the other two virtues of being both productive we have to create something of value whether it's, whether it's just that we have children and we raise them whether we grow a tomato plant, whether we're Shakespeare and we write these wonderful tragedies and plays and sonnets, or uh, but we all have to do something, make something of value. And hopefully not just through our work, although I guess suppose that can all be melded together, but we have to have be productive in some sense and then we have to share it And so that's where I think generosity is the seventh value, and um, I don't think you're free unless you can be generous, Mm. Mm. so that it all links back then to freedom, but those are the, what I understand as at the heart of most, of all pagan ethics really, Um, there are different interpretations, you have your cardinal virtues, uh, you have uh, your heathen Interpretations, but I think if you look and examine them each carefully enough, you'll find that they conform to those four, Mm. those seven Mm. that I've enumerated. That
0: is interesting. I like what you said about you can't really be free without generosity. Mm -hmm. Again, that sort of um, the excess of. Pleasure, or of com- you know, of collections of things yeah, yes. that that become sort of stagnant energy on some Exactly,
1: level. exactly.
0: And letting those, giving those away, mm-hmm. allows that energy to move.
1: I just heard the final of uh, the Christmas Tale Dickens, oh. and and it was it was wonderful. I, I think the World Service had it, and when Scrooge. Suddenly, he recognizes that he doesn't have to be this tight-fisted monster, but he can be generous. He has gained a freedom mm. that he hadn't had before, mm. and and it's a love. It's a lovely tale. It's a lovely story, mm. Mm. and uh, it was just the ending that they broadcast, and uh, yeah. it was very uplifting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, in your book, you so you take those seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, values. Yes. And apply them to different. You know, you show how they can be applied to uh, the ethical issues of the day. Is there one in particular that you did not include in the book, but that you would now? It seems to me that ethical issues are like popcorn in our day and age. They keep new <sighs> ones keep popping up and. <laughs> um.
1: I think that I, ne- I think that they all interplay with each other. I don't think you could, I almost don't think you could have one without the others. Um, how, you, how can you be free if you're not comfortable? How can you be free if you're not healthy? How can you be healthy if you're not free? Um, and how can you be engaged with the honor of life? If you're not contributing to life, and if you're not sharing whatever it is that you can produce out of life, so.
0: Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, okay. this whole question of pro-life. People say I'm pro-life, or many right. Christians or evangelicals will say I'm pro-life, but how can you be pro-life if you are not, uh, if you also fear death? Do you know what I mean How and so there's all these issues that come up well there's abortion there's the right to assisted suicide there's well what do you do with children in poverty is that pro-life you know so there's this whole range of ethical issues
1: there's not going to be any one answer to any of those I mean those there are always going to be quandaries that arise mm-hmm. and I think The ethical thing is conversation, we have to converse with one another, Mm -hmm. we have to find what is the optimal accord or solution to whatever problems we're facing. Uh, The pro-life thing, that's, in. this is a decade or so, at least a decade ago, if not more, the New York Review of Books had a fascinating article on uh, when is the human being viable. And I think it was, I think they cited the Judaic tradition that a person is not a person until they're born. Mm -hmm. So you're not really killing a person if you practice abortion before that. (coughs) Before that, um, Sean Jeron, yeah. Sean Jeron of uh, House of the Goddess in London she talked about the, um, the the midwife was the and the cunning man were the um, they were pagan and they believed in doing the abortion. That was one of their functions. Um, that's comes out of the cunning tradition and that's why when somebody wanted to not have the child they would resort to the cunning woman in the forest Um, so I don't think the pagan of course we don't want to lose children if we have any choice in the matter at all Um, but some people do and again I think that's where the freedom thing overrides yeah. the issue mm-hmm. um, and I know that's a really sensitive issue that's, um, it's a hard one to defend but I respect individual freedom to the extent that um, they have the choice I think the parents have the choice mm-hmm. in that matter
0: it reminds me of that old joke Uh, The minister, the priest, and the rabbi are out in a boat, of course, or maybe they're at a bar, I can't quite remember what time of day it was, but uh, they're arguing about when life begins. The priest says, oh, life begins at conception. The minister says, no, 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 life begins at birth. And the rabbi says, you're both wrong, life begins when the youngest leaves for college.
1: (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. Oh, that's wonderful. I know. I mean, the Jewish sense of humor always wins. It and always wins. Yes. And, and,
0: and mm. see, this is my thing about. To me, it a pagan, pagan ethics or pagan mysticism, pagan, pagan theology or pagan anything, has to be able convert to converse, and to be understood by the broadest number of people. You know, I,
1: I, I, I totally agree with I that. I have a that. lot
0: of friends who just feel like the more esoteric they get, and the smaller the mm-hmm. chosen few that they're speaking to, the more pure. I, I just think that's a, a. I think that's garbage. I don't think that's a way to perpetuate, uh, you know, our belief system and to share the wisdom of it.
1: I mean so much of contemporary paganism is is put into the nature religion format and and I think that's necessary today because we're under such an environmental crisis with, for the planet. And I think that's partly one of the reasons why paganism, is, paganism has is having its rebirth is because it's it's a it's a need. It's you we appreciate we take our parents for granted for so much of our life and we love them but we take them for granted but then they become old yeah and we realize that we're not going to have them much longer and then we start valuing and cherishing them more than we we previously might have right. and i think that's what we're doing with mother earth mm-hmm. and that's where this whole pagan
2: mm-hmm.
1: impetus comes from but again and again we will go back to Bron Taylor when he thinks of religion as an impediment to nature mm-hmm. my own paganism i would say came originally through the arts mm-hmm. and and i think i think that's what's missing in our pagan conversation is that we don't seem to value the arts and cherish the arts And even talk about the arts um, to an extent that I think makes life fuller and richer and ultimately more meaningful and ultimately more beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean it was Ravel's music and especially his Daphnis and Chloe uh, that to me was it just spoke to a whole pagan sentiment and dimension and uh, I find going to the museum. The museum is a temple. It's a temple Mm -hmm. of the Muses. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, That's what the name actually means. Mm -hmm. And um, so yes, nature is also a temple in herself, especially if you could do what Richard and I just did and go to Scotland. And Mm -hmm. uh, the beauty of of just the mountains and the hills and the rolling landscapes and the lochs and the rivers um, that is that is temple worship in itself but we have other temples too and i think that this goes back to idolatry Um, we can worship a tree or we can honor or venerate a tree or a great rock or or a well or spring Mm -hmm. but we can venerate the human-made representation as well and that's where the arts come in and I find that as, not only can one find stimulation and um, that triggering complex that takes you into an, another mm-hmm. dimension through the natural, but you can also find it in a museum or at a concert mm-hmm. or in the theater. Um, that's all a part of it. And so I think One of my criticisms of uh, of paganism. I went to a, an evangelical service, and it was oh, hands raised to the Lord in the sky, and also all, all that kind of stuff. But they had great music. They yeah. had a real band, and I can get very tired of our chants. Good God. Uh, the, and i think we need more appreciation of mm-hmm. real music and bring that into the overall oh, experience so.
0: as long as they're not spewing hatred uh, uh, towards one group or another yes um yeah. sign me up if they've yeah. got great music you bet yes. I'll be there.
1: yes yes exactly I mean, music is terribly contagious so yeah
0: <laughs> well i mean what the one problem I see in this idea of idolatry is, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I have my favorite muses and, you know, I, I I'm that person that goes around collecting black madonnas wherever mm-hmm. I am Oh, oh, right? oh uh, <laughs> And but all of those uh, all of the deities had some bad habits we wouldn't necessarily want to replicate in human form. How do you, how do you square that? Well, in terms of ethics, I guess, or living a good life.
1: All right. Well, I think when we're talking ethics, and this is where I get into my discussions with Graham Harvey. He uh. talks about rock people and tree people and bear people and so forth. And now Graham is not a theologian. and He's not trying to approach it as a theologian, but he can still talk in terms of the, these Rock people, tree people have ethical responsibilities too. And I don't, I can't accept that. I think mm-hmm. ethics is a human uh, phenomenon alone. Um, trees and rocks, whether they're people or not, they're nature. And nature's amoral. Mm-hmm. Um, it's We are the ones that evolve an ethical comprehension of how to relate whatever there is to relate to and all right, remind me what the original question uh, the
0: question was the, uh, the uh, hijinks of the deities and.
1: alright when we're talking about as soon as we make it ethics being human when we're talking about deities or, or angels we're thinking of them in human terms and so they become ethical to the extent that they're also human. Um, if we're just talking about the sun, the sun doesn't have an ethical thing, but if we're talking about the sun god or goddess, um, then we're bringing in a, an ethical dimension because we're understanding that thing in a human or humanoid uh, comprehension. And as humans none of us are going to be perfect, we all make mistakes, hopefully we can learn by our mistakes and that's where the whole thrust is, is to correct what we have not done correctly and to understand that it was not right and to change behavior. Um, so I think this works with the gods as well I I have just given up on writing academic <laughs> things and I wrote a novel and now I'm trying to find a publisher for okay. it and one of the chapters I mean in the novel it's it's partly a story it's three parts to it all intermixed. One is my own life, which I've been really incredibly fortunate to have a very richly fascinating diversified life and experience and the other one I'm looking at the gods themselves and trying to explain who the gods are uh, what they are how they can be approached and Mm -hmm. so forth and the third is an actual story it takes Mm -hmm. place a century or two in the future Um, it's basically a utopian world and what the reality of that utopian Mm -hmm. world involves but one of the chapters of this chapter is just that I have the gods assemble on Olympus and they are examining their past behavior and it's the, the gods that are called forth are Zeus, Apollo, Hermes, I think Dionysus, uh, Poseidon uh, and where they abducted not only just women, but boys in some cases, as, such as Ganymede with Zeus, and um, the gods are being judged. I forget the panel. The, the judging panel includes um, includes Nicholas, Saint Nicholas, or Santa Claus, whatever you want to call them. Hypatia uh, from Alexandria, uh, King Numa Pompilius from Rome. Um, I think Confucius I can't remember them all now oh. um, and they have to pass judgment on are are the gods to be punished and the whole reason for this assembly is that the gods want to be commensurate to a future humanity and um, so in a way, reflecting and contemplating, even in an idolatrous fashion, on a entity that is not complete, is not perfect, I think is more conducive to making us recognize error in the world and how to remedy it than having some absolute perfect entity that only can make us feel inferior and shame in comparison. Whether that answered?
0: Well, that's a great answer, I think. I mean, it just it reminds me of uh, this friend of mine who believes that through dreaming we participate in the evolution of he would call it the archetypes. Well, let's yeah. call it the gods mm-hmm, and goddesses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That our own psyches, as as we engage with those forces. Uh, are you know push the ball a little bit forward, yeah. perhaps?
1: Yeah, yeah. I would, I would definitely go with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have another sequel now to Pagan Ethics, which I'm still trying to get published, and that's Pagan Mysticism. Uh-huh. So it's the third of the whole uh-huh. series. And ultimately, I'm trying, I'm trying to examine what would be a, a pagan understanding of the mystical. Mm. And so I'm do- following the basic same format I have with the other two books in looking at traditional understandings of mysticism and what do we share with them and what do we have that's different? Where do we contrast? Okay. And again, then it goes back to the physical and And I see that the pagan mysticism is much more immediate it's this worldly it takes it can it, it can occur much more readily with the everyday as well as with the shamanic and the special and the ecstatic and so forth but it's not a mysticism that wants us as uh, the via negativa mm-hmm. where we have to give up pleasure we have to endure pain uh, we have to concentrate, we're encouraged to concentrate, but we it's not a withdrawal from the physicality and sensuality of life. It's an engagement with that and going through that to um, the mystical experience of bliss.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm not sure where I was going with that. but.
0: Well, I mean, uh, that just seems like one of the, uh, the apex, an, an apex of the human experience.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I yeah. think you're yeah. Thank you for
0: that. Well, thank you for this, Michael York. What a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Yeah, and I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dream Talk Radio. I'm Ann Hill, and you can find all of my podcasts at dreamtalkradio.net. If you like what you just heard, please let others know and leave a review on iTunes. And if you want to know in advance who I'll be interviewing next, you can find out on the Dream Talk Radio Facebook page. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.